on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. In June 2021 for Talking Soundtracks, I talked to Stephen C. Smith, four times Emmy-nominated journalist, writer and producer of over 200 documentaries about music and cinema, about his book Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer. In May 2022, I had the privilege again to talk to Stephen about this time the first book he published about film music in 1991, about another pioneering and influential composer in the history of film music. A Heart at Fire's Centre for Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann. In part one of this special two-part edition of Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, Stephen and I talk about how this book came about and begin to delve into the varied and at times controversial musical career of Bernard Herrmann, including, amongst others, how he started his career in radio, his meeting and collaboration with Orson Welles, and the beginning of his film music career. During both parts of the show, you will also be hearing loads of the music of Bernard Herrmann, at times original recordings, at other times pre-recordings, all of which showcasing the musical genius of one of the finest ever composers in the field of film music. Stephen C. Smith, welcome back to Talking Soundtracks. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be back. Now, how did you first become a fan of Bernard Herrmann? Well, I became a fan of Bernard Herrmann like many people did, I suspect. I watched a lot of television growing up. I grew up in Los Angeles, and Psycho was already making the rounds of afternoon television. And although I later realized it had been cut by about an hour to fit into a 90-minute time slot... The impact of hearing that main title and, of course, the shower music was both terrifying and thrilling to an eight- or nine-year-old. And I searched out Herman wherever I could, and gradually, over time, as I discovered that the composer for Alfred Hitchcock had been the composer for Orson Welles and the composer for Martin Scorsese and the composer of uh, my two favorite television series, The Twilight Zone and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, I was so fascinated by not only by the music initially, and then I began reading articles about him and realized what an extraordinary contradictory personality he was. 
And I very much wanted to read a book about him and sort of try to take all of these disparate sides of and get some perspective on them. So when I was 19 years old, I looked for that book in the library, found out that there had not been a Bernard Herrmann biography yet. And over Thanksgiving dinner in 1983, I said to my older brother, you know, I really wish there was a book on Bernard Herrmann. And he said the words that changed my life. My brother said, well, why don't you write one? So I went from being a college student with no fixed plan for the future to someone who was at least researching a book that might be written. And eight years later, it was, it was published and I had a career. So I'm very, very grateful to Bernard Herrmann, not only for the extraordinary scores he wrote, but for really putting me on my career path. How long did it take you to research your book? Well, the whole process was about an eight-year one, and I would say the research continued up until the book was pretty much locked. So let's say it was about six and a half, seven years of research, and I was most fortunate living in Los Angeles and attending the University of Southern California because two of Herman's longtime friends, the composer David Raxon and the great radio producer and writer Norman Corwin, were both professors at USC. And my first move on this project was to approach David Raxon. I had no class with him, we'd never met before, and tell him that I wanted to write this book about Herman. Had he said the words, you're far too young, get some life experience and, and come back to me in 10 years, had he said that, I, I may not have written the book. Instead, he said, I think that's a very good idea, and I know who you should speak with. I'll give you the number for Mickey Rocha, Nicholas Rocha, uh, Andre Previn, Aaron Copeland, and he started naming all these people. So once I had David Raxon on my side and then a few of the people that David referred me to, my age became less of an issue and I tried to rise to the occasion and was very thrilled to become friends with Herman's widow Norma, who lived in Britain uh, with his daughter Dorothy, better known as Taffy, and with Benny's two previous wives, Lucille Fletcher and Lucy Anderson. And all of his wives were wonderful, generous people. And as is so often on a project, some of the most memorable aspects of it are the people you meet along the way. And that was certainly true with Herman. He had a wide range of friendships and professional colleagues. Right, let's now talk about Bernard Herman. What exactly was his musical background? His musical background was as rich and diverse as he came to be. He did have formal studies in New York at the New York School of Music and at Juilliard, but I think his greatest source of education was the New York Public Library because it had music scores, not only of all the, the standards of the repertoire, all the great symphonies and such, but it had music by people that most of the world had never heard of. Most importantly, Charles Ives, the very avant-garde composer whose music really was 50 years ahead of its time, and, and Herman later became a great champion of Ives and a friend. So Herman would spend many of his free hours searching through the library, and he discovered not only Berlioz's great Symphony Fantastique, which some of your listeners will know perhaps primarily from its use in The Shining, but it's it's one of the great outrageous pieces of classical music, if you will, about a, a, an artist who takes drugs and has all these wild fantasies about his lover, including murdering her and going to hell. It's a wild symphony from the 19th century and Herman was fascinated by its orchestration and then he learned that Berlioz had written a book on orchestration and Herman was attracted at a very early age to the unconventional both to artists who were unconventional like Berlioz and Ives and to musical approaches that were unconventional while at the same time of course getting a very solid musical education about things that you were expected to learn and understand. 
It's reading the book it was already very opinionated on, on composers even at that point. Yes, it's remarkable how confident he was from an early age, and there really does not seem to have been a great deal of self-doubt in his life. And he was very confident, for example, as a young man, as a teenager, of making friends like George Gershwin and sneaking into the New York Philharmonic rehearsals to watch Toscanini rehearse the orchestra. So he was precocious, but he had the talent to back up that precocious attitude. Now, Herman's route into... The audio media came from radio. How did that decision come about? Well, Herman's decision to go into radio came about uh, out of both uh, commercial necessity and creative opportunity. And I marvel at the fact that both Herman and the subject of my last book, Max Steiner, were really born at the right moment and lived in the right cities. You know, Steiner was in Vienna, the third generation of musical impresario slash producers. And Herman was born in New York City in 1911, so he was in his early 20s at a time that was, well, difficult for just about everyone. The Great Depression was at its peak. But Herman was able to not only write his early concert pieces and to join musical groups, one of which uh, included a young Aaron Copland and other composers of note of that generation, but he found a job at CBS Radio that paid him to write unconventional, unusual music. Radio was a very young medium. It had only been a commercial radio with, with scheduled programs and only been around for, I think, about five or six years at the time that Herman started there. And CBS was a young network, even by the standards of that medium, and it was also the most adventurous. So Herman went to CBS and he wrote underscoring and or transitional music for the radio dramas that were being created. He conducted the CBS Symphony and later became the chief conductor of the CBS Symphony doing concert programs for which he chose the music in the 1930s and 40s. Most importantly, he worked on a series that was basically a, a series of poetry readings to music. And he was able to write what, what are almost his first film scores, if you will, by writing very dramatic music for these four or five minute poems. And ultimately, he collected those and did a full radio, uh, CBS radio broadcast of these so-called melodrams that combined music and the spoken word. And just as Max Steiner, I think, learned how to write for film by conducting musical theater in London and on Broadway where the actors didn't have microphones, so he had to learn how to be very sensitive to not overpower the voice, Herman said that he learned to become a composer for film by scoring hundreds of radio dramas, and that all started with this, this poetry series he worked on. And he was a very quick study, and it's, it's remarkable to listen to that music that he wrote in the 20s, and it is identifiably Bernard Herman. You know, his, his musical fingerprint, if you will, is strongly there with his sense of unconventional orchestration, of muting instruments like the strings and the brass that give it that kind of cold, reserved sound that he often had, although it could still be quite emotional. And in fact, he was so quick in establishing his musical voice that years later, he was able to occasionally borrow a musical idea, a short theme from these early concert pieces or early radio scores and use them in his film work.
weep you no more, sad fountains. What need you flow so fast? Look how the snowy mountains, heaven's sun, doth gently waste. But my son's heavenly eyes view not your weeping, that now lie sleeping softly, now softly lies sleeping. Sleep is a reconciling, a rest that peace begets. Doth not the sun rise smiling when fair at even he sets? Rest you then, rest sad eyes, melt not in weeping while she lies sleeping softly. Now softly lies sleeping. And we have a link to these melodramas due to the work of Michael McGeehy and his new discoveries <laughs> recordings, which you yes. were also involved with, as we have just heard, with the narration of some of these poems. Yes, Michael is wonderful. And the fact that he has recorded some of her earliest scores, as well as those for one of his last radio projects, Crime Classics, is uh, he's adding... Uh, significantly to the canon of recorded music of Herman. How did your collaboration with Michael come about? It was very complicated. Michael asked me. <laughs> yes, no, I've, we've been friends for years, and I thought, well, you, I, he doesn't have to use it if I give it a try. And I thought I was okay for a few of them, but then when I got to the most important of them, Herman's setting of Keats, La Belle Dame, Sans Merci, I just said, you need a better voice for this. And my, my good friend, John Burlingame, was a much more effective narrator for that. And most importantly, Michael, in recreating and reconstructing these scores, it's just extraordinary to hear this music for the first time in stereo 80 years after it was written. Drums of morning play, 
park, the empty highways crying, cool beyond the hills away. Dews that lie and cumber, sunlit pallets never thrive. Morns a bed and daylight slumber were not meant for man alive. Clay lies still, but bloods are rover. Breaths aware that will not keep. Up, lad, when the journey's over, there'll be time enough to sleep. At this point, everything's going swimmingly for Bernard Herrmann at CBS, and suddenly he meets this guy called Orson Welles. <laughs> yes, this guy. Well, one of the great sources of pride for Herman was his relationship, both personal and professional, with Orson Welles. When they met, Welles was about 22, 23 years old. Herman was the old man of about 27 at the time. It shows how smart CBS was that they didn't only take a chance with a Bernard Herman, who really didn't have a track record, but quickly showed himself to have great imagination, but that CBS quickly realized what they had in Orson Welles, an actor, stage producer, director, who rose very, very quickly. And because of his versatility, Wells was appearing on various radio series. And Herman and Wells had a lot in common. They were both very progressive in their thinking. They were iconoclasts. They wanted to try new things and experiment. What was different about them was that although Herman developed a reputation for an explosive temper, which is a deserved reputation, I have to say, he was a consummate professional who always had his music ready on time. Wells embraced chaos <laughs> to an extent that Benny did not, and they had to figure out a way to work together where Wells would come into the studio with sort of half an idea and put it all together in time for what was a live radio show. There were no second takes, so it all had to come together. And Wells's primary collaborator during this time in his producing was a man named John Houseman, later known as a successful actor as well. And Houseman wrote in his autobiography a, a wonderful couple of sentences about the Herman Wells relationship. He said, Amid the screaming rows, snapping of batons, accusations of sabotage, and hurling of scripts and scores into the air and at each other, they came to understand each other perfectly. <laughs> And I can't do better than that, except to say that to the end of his life, which was an end that came too soon in 1975, but to the end of his life, Herman always spoke very warmly of Wells and said basically, and I'm, now I'm paraphrasing, that he upped everyone's game, that there was something always special about a radio show. And even if the results didn't quite come off, Orson was more interesting in his failures than other people were in their successes. Now, I do have a passing interest of the Orson Welles recordings because I have a number of them in my collection, including Dracula and especially the classic War of the Worlds. And there's a sequence in your book which I thought was hilarious concerning the aftermath and the chaos in the studio with Herman being more than happy to be arrested at the time. Could you tell listeners about what happened during and after Orson Welles' infamous recording of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds? 
Yes, yes. Well, for those who don't know, Orson Welles was given his own radio series in 1938 that ultimately became known as the Mercury Theater on the Air, the Mercury Theater being Welles' stage troupe. It was now a radio troupe as well, and Herman was the series' music director. And they began by adapting a lot of well-known public domain novels like Dracula and Treasure Island and A Tale of Two Cities and creating very exciting, very imaginatively directed radio programs. There was just one problem. Not many people were listening because there was a very, very popular variety show on another network at the same time. So Wells was seen as very artistic, very unusual, but not a populist. Well, everything changed on the night of October 30th, 1938, because Wells decided to present an adaptation of H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds, published in 1898. And Orson Wells, no relation to H.G., decided to update it by doing it as if a Martian invasion were happening in America that night and doing it in the style of radio news programs. And in 1938, uh, Hitler was invading countries like Czechoslovakia, which had just occurred before this broadcast. And there was a lot of anxiety in America about another possible war. And Wells and Hausman rewrote the script by Howard Koch, Howard Koch, a writer for hire who later co-wrote Casablanca. They rewrote his script to give it even greater urgency. And they were so effective in doing this adaptation of the science fiction novel as if it were a series of live news reports of, of Martians conquering America and destroying whole cities that several thousand people actually believed this was happening. Uh, there's a very good book on the subject for those who want to find out more. It's called Broadcast Hysteria, and it really takes all the, the letters and documents collected by CBS and the FCC, and they confirm the fact that many people did think that this was real for either all or some of the programming. Herman's involvement was to create the dance band music for a fictional radio program that these news bulletins were interrupting. So for the most part, we don't have original Bernard Herman underscoring, but we have him pretending to be Ramon Kello, dance band conductor. <laughs> and despite the many talents that Herman had accrued by 1938 at the age of 27, he was not a good conductor of popular music. There's some funny stories about how poorly he was doing during the rehearsal of it when they were doing classic standards like Stardust and other songs. <laughs> but uh, And if you listen to the final show, it's, it's not a very good dance band. But it serves its purpose. And Herman loved the whole concept of the program. that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Now, no one, I am convinced that no one thought that this was going to convince people that a real attack was taking place. I mean, basically, New York is destroyed by 30 minutes into the program. But people were so swept up into such a convincing and beautifully paced show that starts slowly and, and then builds faster and faster that, that people bought into it. And that night, it was unclear if people had died as a result of this, whether there were going to be lawsuits, what, what the ramifications would be. 
and Herman was very excited by it all, and I think he was very he was very pleased with how it came off. So that when the show ended and reporters and some police ran into the studio, Benny called his first wife Lucille Fletcher and told her, with as she recalled great excitement in his voice, the fact that Benny thought that he and Wells and Houseman were going to be arrested, <laughs> which they weren't, and it actually turned out very well for everyone because fortunately no one died as a result of that program. It made headlines around the world. It was front page news in international papers and that program caught the attention of RKO Studios which was struggling which is something that it was almost always doing and uh, the head of RKO George Schaefer thought well if Orson Welles can get this much attention for a radio show maybe he can make a successful movie so RKO invited Welles to come to Hollywood and make Citizen Kane and or I should say they invited him to make a movie and Wells decided that movie would be as it ultimately became Citizen Kane. And rather than use some composer on the RKO staff, uh, Wells said, I want my musical director, Bernard Herman, to write the score. And Wells had such an ironclad contract to do almost anything he liked on this film. He was able to bring 29-year-old Bernard Herman with no film experience to Hollywood and they created not only one of the greatest films of all time, but Herman created one of the greatest scores. Sure, RKO needed some convincing to bring in this composer from radio to score such an important film as Citizen Kane. How did Orson Welles manage to convince RKO to give Herman the break of scoring Citizen Kane? Well, for the only time in his career, alas, Welles had a contract that basically gave him a free reign in terms of who would be in the film, who would work behind the camera, and he did work with RKO. It wasn't as if he was saying, you know, my way or the highway. I mean, he was working with the finest technicians at the studio. He was working with one of Hollywood's greatest cinematographers, Greg Toland. So it was a perfect marriage of the best of the Hollywood studio system working with someone in Wells who had brilliant new visual ideas, sound ideas. And what one thing that Herman loved about the film was that he was able to work on it from the very beginning so that all through the writing of it, through the shooting of it, he was putting his musical ideas together. And apparently some of the, at least one sequence was shot to playback of Herman's music. That's how unconventional it was.
the thing he was most proud of in that score was the fake opera he wrote for the ill-fated last wife of Charles Foster Kane, Susan Alexander Kane, the, the singer who Kane builds a, an opera house for and forces her to go into this operatic career that she doesn't want. The opera that is performed in the film, Salambo, is not a real opera. It is written by Herman, and that was something that Wells asked Benny to do, and yes, to his friends he was known as Benny, and the reason, as Herman later explained, that they didn't just take a, an existing aria, was that the music had to be the very first thing you hear in the opera and be very demanding for a soprano voice, and that there was no opera that really served their dramatic needs in that way. And Herman also was very careful to point out that Susan... Alexander Kane, she's not a bad singer. She just has a light voice. You know, she would have been a, a someone who would sing popular songs. But Kane, who can only make things as big as they can possibly be, you know, she has to be the best singer in the world, he puts her in a place she doesn't belong, or in the concert hall. And so what Herman did to create the right musical effect was he did not hire a poor singer to sing Susan Alexander Kane's role. He hired a light lyric soprano, and he explained to her what the situation was. And so you have a young woman singing, straining her voice, trying to do her best, singing a kind of music that she just isn't equipped to do. And that's an early example of something that Herman did throughout his career, which was take great care in the details and do something that other people would not have thought of.
in the same year, in 1941, Herman scored his second film, The Devil and Daniel Webster. Yes, yes, and it's a film that has a few different titles. It was originally known as All That Money Can Buy. It is better known now by the name that it should have had, The Devil and Daniel Webster. And this continued Herman's winning streak. It was not directed by Orson Welles, but most of the crew, or I should say many of the crew that worked on Citizen Kane also worked on this film, The Devil and Daniel Webster, because it was also made at RKO. And similarly, in its own way, this is as experimental a film as Citizen Kane. And it is the movie that brought Bernard Herman his first and only Academy Award for his second film score. So he wasn't doing badly at all. And briefly, it's a folksy variation of the Faust story about a young farmer who is down on his luck and the devil comes to see him one day in the form of Walter Houston's irresistible Mr. Scratch. And for the minor price of farmer Jabez Wilson's soul, Jabez Wilson can have everything he wants for seven years, all that money can buy, and then he has to give up his soul. It's a really marvelous fantasy film that has just been restored. So hopefully by the time your listeners hear this, there will be a pristine video version of this that we can watch because there has not been one for... Uh, for some 80 years? Yes, 80 years. What's really wonderful about this film is that its director, William Dieterle, really encouraged Herman to experiment to the same degree that Wells had done, so that when Mr. Scratch, the devil, is playing the fiddle in one sequence for a barn dance, he's suddenly playing the violin in a way that no single human being could. He's playing like multiple violin parts simultaneously. And the way that Herman did this was to record the initial simple track, the music is the folk tune Pop Goes the Weasel, and then he had the same violinist record a second track that was married to the first, and a third, and a fourth. And it doesn't at all sound like, say, a chamber group of violinists. It doesn't sound like separate violinists. It sounds as if one person is doing the impossible. And it's a brilliant sequence. And so ideas like that and many others in the film, I think, are the reason that that film won Herman his Academy Award. And I should mention that Citizen Kane was also nominated for Best Score, so he, he did something doubly impressive. Usually when a composer is nominated for two films, it sort of splits the vote and someone else wins, but he won over himself as well as other composers in 1941.
many composers who burst onto the scene as much as Herman did that year with two scores nominated for Academy Award and, and actually winning for one of them. And two classic films that are as good today as they were then, yes. Now, Herman has started with two great scores and then produced another great score for Orson Welles' second film, and Livingston Ambersons, but things did not go as planned for Wells and Herman, coming to a point where Herman in the end actually disowned the film. Yes, well, any notion that Wells and Herman had, and I think they did believe that they were going to uh, continue to have these kinds of successes in Hollywood, those ideas were shattered with the third Herman-scored film and Wells's second-directed film, The Magnificent Ambersons. And it's a complicated story. Briefly, Wells chose as his follow-up project to Kane something that was even less commercial, an adaptation of a novel that had been popular about 15 years earlier and is about basically the collapse of a family in turn-of-the-century America and written by Booth Tarkington. And Wells had done it as a successful radio program, but it was really something of a downer of a story. And Wells filmed it. And then he went off to make a sort of what we would now call a docudrama for the war effort because December 7th happened just as the shooting was completed. That is the attack on Pearl Harbor. America was now at war and Orson went off to do his part for the war effort by making this kind of half fiction, half fact propaganda film in South America. So he went away at the critical point when this movie was being previewed and Herman had written a full score for the film. And preview audiences hated this movie, and RKO was shocked, and they kept previewing it, and I have to say for the historical record that that audience that was already considerably depressed by the circumstances of Pearl Harbor and World War, this was not the movie for them. I'll never know because I haven't seen it, but there's some excellent books about the film. I think there were some problems with the film, and if Wells had been available to direct new sequences as they wanted him to do and supervise a new cut of the film, it would have been a film much closer to his intentions. But Wells was gone and RKO changed regimes and the feeling was, let's get this movie out as soon as possible and just just wash our hands of it and wash our hands of Orson Welles because it had been a very expensive film and Citizen Kane had not made money. Some other hands directed some additional scenes. The movie was cut from, I believe it was 133 minutes, you know, two hours, 13 minutes to just 88 minutes. So a lot was cut. Herman was not brought back to rescore the other sequences. You know, RKO, recognizing that they had a money loser on their hands, had a actually very talented staff composer named Roy Webb score the additional sequences. But it's not a harmonious fit of two composers, let's put it that way. You can certainly tell what is Herman and what isn't. And Herman was so enraged by this, and I certainly understand his feelings, that he insisted that his name be taken off the film, and it's not on the film. Late in life, when he gave lectures, he would talk about the original movie and what was changed. And Herman, I think, was an optimistic young man with a temper and with a kind of explosive personality. But I think that the experience on Magnus and Ambersons really made him distrustful of Hollywood in a way that he hadn't been before. And he was still living in New York. He still saw his career primarily as someone who wrote concert music, who wanted to write all kinds of music, who still worked for CBS as a staff composer conductor. So he put Hollywood behind him and went back to work in radio where he felt he could trust the people more.
Bernard Herrmann did a lot of work for 20th Century Fox over the years. In fact, one of my all-time favourite scores was his first he did for Fox, Jane Eyre. Tell us how the association with 20th Century Fox started and your thoughts on Herrmann's music for Jane Eyre. Yes. Well, without an Orson Welles backing him up, uh, in other words, you know, without someone who was very strong and powerful supporting a rather unconventional film composer, someone who liked to experiment, Herman didn't think he stood much of a chance at getting many jobs in the industry. But he was happily proven wrong when he met Alfred Newman, who was the head of music at Fox. And at first, Herman, and again, this was kind of his, I think it's fair to say paranoia. Uh, his friends have said that, or his, let's say his distrust. He, he didn't think that Newman would, he, would have any respect for him or want him to work there. Well, just the opposite was true. Newman was a great Herman fan, and they became good friends. And that explains the long and very happy association between Herman and Fox during what we'll call the Alfred Newman years, uh, because Herman worked at Fox from 1943 until the early 60s. And yes, Jason, as you mentioned, Jane Eyre was the first of those films, and it really is kind of a good segue from the Orson Welles years, because Orson Welles is the co-star of that version, playing Rochester, and Joan Fontaine is Jane. And this film was very important to determine his life. It, just, it wasn't just his first film at Fox. It's not just a great score, although it is. But it's the movie that really made him fall in love with the writing of the Bronte sisters. And he was familiar with it. But when a film was being adapted from a book like Jane Eyre, Herman would go back and read the source material. That wasn't something a Max Steiner wanted to do. Max wanted to just respond to how the story was being told on the film because he thought that the way the actors looked and sounded was so important. Herman, on the other hand, really liked to dig in and do a lot of research. And he was so enamored of the Brontes' writing that after scoring Jane Eyre, he began what would be an eight-year odyssey of writing what would be his only full-length opera, Wuthering Heights, based on the Emily Bronte book. And sadly, the writing of that opera proved to be a rather negative force in much of his life. It, it contributed to the disillusion of his marriage to Lucille Fletcher, the writer who was writing the libretto. Herman was very flexible working on a film, more than people would think that, you know, if a scene was recut or something, he understood and he would change his music accordingly. Sometimes music cues were dropped. He was generally fine with that. But when it came to his opera, he wouldn't cut a bar. And it is a very long opera that I think most people would agree would benefit from cuts and does benefit from cuts when it's done. So he never saw a production of it in his lifetime. He was so intractable about it. But at least, so that's, that's the importance of Jane Eyre in his career. Yes, in reading a book for most of his life, Herman was an Anglophone and loved everything British in a way. By working on Jane Eyre, <laughs> yes. was this the start of his Anglophoneness? Well, no. Uh, Benny was an Anglophile from a very early age. He loved the music of Elgar. Uh, he loved the music of Vaughn Williams, who became a friend. He loved Dickens. Each Christmas, he would reread a Christmas carol, sometimes out loud if he was you know, dating someone. You know, that was a Christmas ritual, <laughs> was to read Christmas carol together. And he scored various versions of a Christmas carol, as it turned out. So Benny was just, uh, and I, it's something I share with him, and it's perhaps another reason I wanted to write the book, is that he was a tremendous Anglophile and, of course, lived his last years in, in London.
Now, another one of Herman's early scores, in fact, one of his favourites, was The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. During the 1940s, Herman was really in an ideal situation. He was based in New York. He was writing concert music that was played uh, by the CBS Symphony, sometimes by the New York Philharmonic. He scored a, a number of successful radio series, some of them with Wells. They occasionally reunited on radio. And then he would really just pick a Hollywood movie once a year from what he was offered. That's why his 40s films are all so terrific, was that he wasn't out there just working on film to film to film like a Steiner or you know, Newman. He was just sort of cherry-picking the, the favorites. And in 1947, he scored The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, which is a really poetic, lovely romantic supernatural fantasy film and it's easy to see once you've seen the movie why it's a favorite for many people it's just exquisitely done again the studio system at its best casting the right people and bringing the right people together to make the film its timing in herman's life is rather extraordinary because it's about a widow named lucy muir played by the beautiful jean tierney who is in love with a ghost the ghost in her house and at the time benny was married to a lucy lucille fletcher and then he fell in love with Lucille's cousin, one of whose names was Lucy. Her other name was Catherine, which is the name in Wuthering Heights, which he was writing at the time. So he falls in love with someone who has the name Lucy and the name Catherine. And it was a messy situation, and it took several years for Herman to, to decide what to do in his life. But listening to the music of the ghost of Mrs. Muir, I think you hear him falling in love with someone. And it is simply an exquisite score. And later in life, when he was asked to bring one of his films and it would be shown and he would speak after it, he sometimes surprised his host by not bringing Psycho or Vertigo, but bringing the ghost of Mrs. Muir. And indeed, that was his favorite of his own films. surprised he did take the ghost of mrs Moore. it's one of his most personal and lyrical scores in my opinion yes and i think hearing it it's very important to hear that music to understand a lot of herman's personality because he wasn't just this gruff tyrannical <laughs> tempestuous screaming person although he could be that at times he was very sensitive and he could be very loving and you hear that side of him and he was an exceptional writer about music and about art painting so that side of him i think is very much reflected in this exquisite score 
another score from Fox, but in 1951. And this, to me, is a very important film because of it showed how Herman was starting to play around with orchestral convention. The day the earth stood still. Yes, The Day the Earth Stood Still very much reflects the, the side of Herman that really wanted to push the envelope and experiment. And it's also a testament to Alfred Newman at Fox trusting him and the director, Robert Wise, who had edited Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons and All That Money Can Buy, trusting Benny to do something different. Because for this rare A-budget science fiction film made by Fox, Benny combined traditional instruments with things like electric violin, electric bass, two theremins, four pianos, four harps. It was a very unconventional ensemble. And Robert Wise said that when Benny explained what he wanted to do, Robert Wise didn't really understand it, but he said, I trust you. <laughs> it's gonna, and, and he was thrilled with the result. So I think that, that Herman was always someone who experimented. Uh, when he was in radio, the budgets varied. So sometimes you'd have a very small ensemble. Sometimes you could have a large one. He did a lot of fantasy programs in radio, and they play with sound and in lots of clever ways. So I think whether it's The Devil and Daniel Webster in 1941 or The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951, he loved to often use short musical phrases and vary them through orchestration, and he knew how to build drama and suspense. So I know I've been talking a lot about his, his instrumentation, but he really was a very gifted composer. He, he just knew that he felt that each film should have its own musical identity, its own musical ensemble, that there was no reason to use a standard orchestra on every film because every film was different.
Yes, yes, I've always thought of him as a pioneer of the unusual orchestration in film scores. And also as a kind of like anti-James Horner, like Horner used to write these long cues without any breaks. Herman wrote very short cues. She's like the antithesis of James Horner. Yes, one of the things that Herman did that certainly was influential and innovative and that separated him from composers who preceded him in film was that he often wrote very short cues. And he said that that came out of his radio work because on radio shows, sometimes you needed music that would just transport the listener in 10 seconds from one scene to the next. And it wasn't that he only wrote short music, but he didn't overwrite for films. You know, he thought that if the drama was working well, he didn't need to be there. And so he was very, very shrewd about what they call spotting the film, you know, choosing the places for the music. He wasn't a show off. He said, I always love this quote, that the composer's first job is to get inside the drama. And that's one thing that also sets Herman apart is that he is, I think, the greatest creator of musical psychology or enriching the psychology of a film through music. Now, Alfred Newman managed to bring Herman to Fox and there's this unique situation where they actually scored a film together. The yes. Egyptian. Well, just about everything on The Egyptian was didn't quite go according to plan. It, originally, it was this epic film set in ancient Egypt. was supposed to star Marlon Brando, but he wisely left. The head of Fox, Daryl Zanuck, cast his mistress in a key role, and she's not that great. And the script isn't that great. So this is not a terrific movie. But Alfred Newman was going to be the composer, and Alfred Newman had certainly established himself as a great composer of epics with Fox films like The Robe. The problem was, and this happened on many movies, time was running out and the movie was long and it needed a lot of big music and that was a lot for Alfred Newman to do. So Herman had the idea, and again, this this is reflective of his, when he trusted someone, he really trusted someone. He proposed that he and Newman work together on this film and they did. They divided up the movie, they scored it, and it's a really terrific score for a less than wonderful movie.
and with the prelude from the 1954 film The Egyptian, we've come to the end of part one of this special two-part interview on talking soundtracks with Stephen C. Smith concerning his book A Heart at Fire Centre, The Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann. I do hope you have enjoyed what you have heard so far. Part two of this interview will be with you very, very soon on the Cinepatic Sound Radio podcast. But until then, for me, Jason Drury, it's take care and happy listening. Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program. And to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>